0: Up that song. (laughs) That's a classic. Wow. The wife told me I should wear this sweater today because it brings out the blue in my eyes. So you can be the judge. Technically, on my driver's license, it lists my eye color as bloodshot. (laughs) Probably should have wore a red sweater instead. But (laughs) Uh, really excited with the topic that we're uh, on today. Uh, Mike did that seminar. I told him I'd get up and give him a little break here today, and what a perfect topic to land on. Because I'm excited about this because this gives us a chance not only to look at the New Testament, but a little bit of the Old, and especially to be able to go back and bang around a little bit in Genesis. Uh, my spiritual advisor, one of the... M- Uh, many people who was very influential early on in my becoming a Christian always hammered Genesis. And he says, if if you understand what happened in those first few uh, chapters of the Bible, all the rest of it will make sense. Conversely, if you don't get Genesis, then the rest of it you'll probably take it in the wrong direction. So we spent a lot of time in uh, Genesis 1 through 3 and really trying to get our heads around it because I've seen that there's a lot of misunderstanding when it comes to that particular book. Uh I know that Genesis has sparked all kinds of uh there's all kinds of jokes that people use in Genesis. Uh they're lame. You know, jokes like, uh, you know, Adam negotiating with God because he says he wants a suitable wife, and so he lays out all these things he wants in a wife, and she's got to not only be drop-dead gorgeous, but completely compliant and always do what I want her to do and be very quiet and humble and not like to shop or spend money, <laughs> and and she's got to love football and other sports and be willing to let me, uh you know, put car parts in the dishwasher and <laughs> Always let me have the remote control. So we asked God, what will that cost me? And God goes, wow, that's a lot. That's going to cost you an arm and a leg. He goes, well, what can I get for a rib? <laughs> or there's the other one where the... The uh, uh, British guy, the French guy, and the Russian guy are standing there in that museum contemplating that famous painting of Adam and Eve in the garden, pre-fall, and everything's beautiful. And the British guy goes, oh, he says, they're obviously, he says, they're Brits. He says, look at them. They're very stoic. They're, they're proper. They're well-behaved. He says, he's not even taking advantage and looking down at her in her nudity. He's looking her in the eye. He says, obviously, British. And the French guy goes, no, no, he says, they're French. He says, look, they're naked and they're, they're, they're in a garden enjoying nature and they're, they're frolicking. He goes, that's, that's, they're French. And the Russian goes, comrades, you're both wrong. They're obviously Russian. He says, look at them. He says, they have no shelter. They have no, they have no clothing. All they have is one single apple to eat, and yet they believe they're living in a paradise. Oh, obviously Russian. <laughs> uh, yeah, I didn't say there were funny jokes, but, but Genesis has been the, the, the butt of a lot of jokes. It's been the butt of a lot of misunderstandings. It's amazing what people believe. You know, they, they talk about uh, Adam and Eve eating an apple. Well, it, technically the fruit in the garden had nothing to do with an apple, but they, they, it sparks bad theology. It sparks conspiracy theories. I've heard people try to tie that non-existent apple to apple computers, and it's all about the technology, man. That was a reference to apple computers and, and all this technology we're supposed to stay away from, and uh and there's other people that, uh, that believe that what happened in Genesis was a sexual thing. And people that actually believe, well, you know, you got this, uh, naked guy there and he's standing around his garden really bored, right? And then this naked girl comes along. Well, you know, next thing you know, sin happened. <laughs> and, and so they really try to tie it to, to human sexuality. And there's just all kinds of misunderstandings and misconceptions in that book. So, Again, I'm really happy that we're able to go back and look at that because today specifically what we're looking at is comparing and contrasting Adam with Jesus Christ. It's really interesting that the Bible refers to Adam as the first Adam or the first man and refers to Christ as the last Adam. Kind of an interesting term for Jesus Christ. So today's passage... We're going to read uh, out of Romans 5, the 12th verse uh, to the end of the chapter, and this is what we're going to talk about today. It starts off Romans 5:12. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, and in this way death came to all men, because all sinned, for before the law was given, sin was in the world. But sin is not taken into account when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command, as did Adam, who was the pattern of the one to come. But the gift is not like the trespass. For if the many died by the trespass of the one man, How much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? Again, the gift of God is not like the result of the one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation. But the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. For if by the trespass of one man death reigned through that one man... How much more will will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Consequently, just as the result of one trespass was condemnation for all men, so also the result of one act of righteousness was justification that brings life for all men. For just as though the disobedience For just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. The law was added so that the trespass might increase, but where sin increased, grace increased all the more. So that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. <clears throat> the, the one part of this verse that we read, is, or this passage rather, that I think really provides a solid foundation for understanding what's going on in this is that one line buried in here where it refers to uh, Christ, or I'm sorry, it refers to Adam, It says here, Adam, who is a pattern of the one to come. Now, that term kind of got a hold of me because uh, I'm a motorhead. (laughs) And understanding a little bit about cars and manufacturing and design, what a pattern turns out to be, there's different words you can use in manufacturing for that. You could use terms like uh, a mock-up, a prototype, uh, a sample, a model, a fabrication, oftentimes what you do in manufacturing is you will design a one-off thing. And some of it might just be a pattern, something like if you're welding a new patch panel into a rusty fender, you might cut one out of cardboard and trim it to get it to the right size and shape. That's a pattern before you go and make one out of rigid steel. Or a, uh, it might be more of like a Prototype, uh, where you might make a one-off of something that actually works and runs, but yet it's not your final product, and you're going to test it and decide what works and what doesn't. So you might come up with a prototype, or you might make a smaller model of something. Bridge builders make small ones before they build the real one. Uh, But whatever it is, it has more to do with the design phase versus the completed one, and. When the Bible in this passage refers to Adam as a pattern or a prototype of one to come, that's curious, isn't it? Because if Adam was some type of a uh, a prototype or some kind of beta testing, then it raises the question, why? I mean, did that benefit God somehow or he had to test <laughs> mankind before he came up with Christ or, see, I don't really believe that God is the type of engineer where he doesn't understand what he's doing. I think he's fully capable of doing a one and done on anything. So I really have to believe that by creating Adam before Christ, it was much more for our understanding and our benefit rather than for his own. See, I really believe that what God created in Genesis, not just with Adam, but the whole scenario in the garden, was more for our understanding. Because if it wasn't for doing that before Christ, it would really be hard for us to go back and say to God, well, why didn't you try this, or why didn't you try that? That's why I really believe the entire Old Testament is one communication from God to us showing us everything that didn't work with us. All the things he tried that didn't bear fruit. So then, when the New Testament and the New Covenant came along, he could finally reveal the only thing that did work. But if you look at all the failures, some people get back in the Old Testament and they go, well, look what God did to man. When really we should see it through God's eyes. Look what, God, look what man did to God. Look at our failures and how God was the one that kept trying to save us and restore us. So with that, with that angle on it, uh, somebody asked an intriguing question one time in a study we were doing. They said, how many people, how many humans has God created by now? And your head might go, oh, God, was there seven million people on the planet? How many millions? But really, said, no, I think the answer is three. God created Adam. Out of Adam, God created Eve, and then his only begotten son, Jesus Christ, who wasn't created, and we'll get into that. But other than the human lives of Christ, Adam, and Eve, everybody else really was created by man, not God. It's interesting to me, if you get into uh, the genealogy of Christ in Luke 3.38, it talks about Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, and then it refers to Adam as the son of God, just like Christ. Adam, the son of God. But does that make him up there with Jesus? No, I think it simply means that Adam had no earthly parents. God created him. So in that respect, he was God's son. But in Genesis 5, 1 through 3, it also says, when God created mankind, he made them in the likeness of God. Adam and Eve were created in God's image, God's likeness. But then it goes on to say, he created them male and female and blessed them. And he named them mankind, Adam, which is what the word means, when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he had a son in his own likeness, in his own image, and he named himself. So you see, unlike Adam and Eve who were created in the image and likeness of God, every human after that is more created in the image and likeness of our earthly parents, Adam. Now, granted, I believe we all retain certain vestiges of God in us. I think we all have an appreciation for beauty. I think that's a God thing. I think we have an appreciation for life and for nature. I think those are God things. I know that we all have a God-given need to create, just like God is a creator. But I think we all need to create something out of nothing, be it through music, through art, through construction, putting up a building that wasn't there before, or fixing things, making a car run that didn't run before, it scratches a certain divine itch in us where we step back just like God and we look at it and go, it is good. I mean, I do that in my shop. When I'm fixing a car or was restoring cars back then, I'd do something and get it done, and I'd pull up a chair and just sit in the garage and look at it for a while. (laughs) And I just... Admire, you know, how this came together and go, wow. But just like God, every day at the end of a day's creation, He stepped back and contemplated what He created. I think that's really a God thing. So I think we still have a lot, even in a fallen state, a lot of qualities and character, characters of God. But despite that, we also have a lot from our earthly parents, Adam. So, In the New Testament, it refers to Jesus as the only begotten Son of God. What's that word begotten mean? Now, some cults will tell you, well, that means God created Jesus, and they go in a whole different direction. But the word begotten in the Greek, I'll probably pronounce it wrong, but it's actually monogenes, monogenes. But it's a Greek word that means the only one of its kind, unique. So, it, in Hebrews 11.17, God referred to Isaac as Abraham's only begotten son. Well, that's kind of crazy because he had other sons. So why is that one son special? Why is he begotten? Well, it's simply because it wasn't how he was created. He was the only son that he had with uh, Sarah. But it also had to do with he was the son of the covenant that they made. So it was a relational thing. And that's what made him unique. And in the same way, what we're going to learn is that Adam and Eve, or I'm sorry, Adam and Christ both were created or both retained certain qualities. But as we know, Jesus wasn't created. He's God, fully God. He's always been here. He's always been alive. But he wasn't always alive in a human body. And you see, he was he voluntarily came to this earth and entered into a human body to achieve a certain mission. But that doesn't mean he was created in entirety. It just means that in his body, that was a new deal. Now, Adam, on the other hand, was a created being. And we read the account of how he was created from the dust of the earth. And the Bible says uh, that and this is out of Genesis 2.7. It says that Jesus has always been alive, but Adam became alive. Genesis says, Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Now notice when Adam, it says, became alive. It was when God breathed his spirit into Adam. He became a living being. So that's kind of interesting because this is the way, I love how simple this was explained to me years ago. It says there's three different levels of life, physical, mental, and spiritual. Simple. Plants are alive because they're alive in body. They have a living body. Animals are alive because they have a living body, but they also have a living, what I would call a soul. Anybody with pets knows that animals have a personality. They have likes and dislikes. They have emotions. I know I've seen animals display jealousy towards each other. I've seen them get angry. I've seen them get scared. I've seen them retain memories. Uh, I've seen them, you know, almost like expressing love and affection. So they have personality, and that's what we would call a soul. But man was unique, and we were supposed to be alive not only in body and soul, but in spirit. So Adam was created alive, unique, in body, soul, and spirit. God breathed his spirit into Adam. And what happened when God said, if you eat this fruit of this tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will die. The first death was immediate. It was a spiritual death. Because I believe what happened at that instant was that spirit inside of Adam left his body. Now, God didn't leave him entirely. He was still with him. He was still on him. He just wasn't in him. So he fell to a point kind of like animals, still alive in body and soul, but not alive in spirit. Now, if you lose your... If your soul is gone, your essence is gone, then what do they sometimes say even in medicine? You know, if you're just being kept alive by a machine, they refer to you cruelly as a vegetable. But, you know, that's just a a blunt way of saying that you can even fall to just that level of only having a living body. But Adam was created a live body, soul, spirit. And you see, the restoration that comes through Christianity makes perfect sense to me today, because we are born devoid of spirit. Dead, the Bible says, stillborn spiritually. We were born retrobate, dead in trespasses and sins. And what the act of Christianity is, is to receive the same spirit inside of us that Jesus had inside of him. He was fully human just like us, a real body. He wasn't some apparition. But he was also fully God because that spirit inside of him was fully divine. Now if God was just, or if Jesus was just a physical guy but didn't have God inside of him, he'd be a great guy. But he wouldn't be Jesus. He wouldn't be a savior. He wouldn't be God. So he couldn't really help us. But conversely, if he was fully divine and not human, he couldn't help us either. So he had to be both. Well, how can you be both natural and supernatural? Well, it's by having a physical body and a divine spirit. And you see, so in one way, that made Jesus like Adam, but yet it's made him much greater than Adam. So with that understanding, as we look at this, I'm just going to, you could spend a lot of time looking at all the comparisons and all the contrasts between Adam and Jesus, but I'm just going to throw a few of them out there that, that we can pick up out of this. Both. One of them is that Adam lost God's spirit. When Christ came, he came to restore God's spirit. Through Adam, it went out. Through Christ, it comes in. Uh, Another is it's interesting that fruit is involved in both of these. The fall of man involved eating the fruit of a tree. But yet Christ is referred to as the first fruits of what was to come. First fruits being something that was understood as when you made sacrifices in the Jewish culture. Some of the things that you would bring as an offering were the first fruits that you raised for the year, your crops, and you would uh, give those up. So Christ was like referred to himself as the first fruits. He was the initial sacrifice that was given back to God. So at, another thing is that Adam is the person who ushered in law, where Christ was the one that ushered in love. See, you've heard me say this before, but to me this is such a critical thing to understand how all religion, religion was born in the Garden of Eden. Because remember what the particular name of that tree was in the Garden? It was the tree of the, Knowledge of good and evil. All religion divides things according to what? Rather it's good or bad, doesn't it? And that's what just separates a lot of religions. They have a different list of things that are good and a different list of things that are bad. That's what always amused me when I was on a church search and I went to all these different religious organizations all over town trying to figure out this Christianity thing. And I thought, how do they use the same book and come up with all these different rules? You go to one church and, well, you know, just don't eat meat on Fridays. You know, the rest of the week is okay, no meat on Fridays. The next one, oh, you can eat whatever you want, but uh, you can't dance. <laughs> okay, I like this play. You know, I, I like meat and I don't dance. <laughs> that's probably where I belong. That's my religion, boy. <laughs> I don't want to dance. <laughs> I couldn't dance if you were shooting at my feet. <laughs> but uh, so, and then you go to a different church. Oh, you can dance, but you can't have musical instruments in church. I'm going. What page is that on? <laughs> but yeah, that's what they concocted. And so, but they have this list of good and bad. And you see, that's the essence of law. These, This set of scales, if you will, dividing good and evil, good and bad. Judging everything according to that's good, that's bad. If anybody's old enough to remember the old hee-haw uh, TV shows, you know, and the guy in the barbershop would tell this story, and that happened. Oh, that's good. No, it's not. And then he'd tell why it was bad. well, no, that's bad. No, it's not. And then he'd turn around and tell why it was good. Uh, oh. There's another similar story like that that uh, I always thought was rather interesting. Uh, an old German guy in World War I that had a son and, uh, they were very poor as all the farmers were in Germany at that time because they didn't have tractors. They could only farm a small plot of land. The land was rocky, so it was hard to plow. And if you had a beast of burden like a horse or an ox, you were very rich and very blessed because then you could hook a plow up to that horse or whatever and pull it and you could farm more land and raise more crops. And one day the farmer's son corralled a wild stallion and all the villagers came out to tell the farmer how good it was that he finally got an animal to do farming with. And that's really good. And the farmer goes, but is it? And then the next day his son's out trying to tame this wild horse and he gets bucked off and breaks his arm. Now all the villagers come out and, you know, to share the guy's sorrow. And we heard your son got a broken arm and from that horse. And we're sad and, you know, that's a bad thing. And the farmer goes, but is it? The next day, the German army swept through and they conscripted all of the uh, eligible young men and forced them into the service where they had to go fight in the war and probably die. His son couldn't go because he had a broken arm. So, who are we to even know what's good or bad? But that's isn't that just how we always think in terms of good and bad? When Christ came along... He slid that set of scales aside and set up a whole different set of scales. He, he wanted nothing to do with good and bad. You know, you've heard me say before, one time or a couple of times, somebody called him good teacher and he actually kind of went off on him. He didn't want to be associated with goodness. He didn't say, follow me because I'm good. He said, follow me because I am the truth. I tell you the truth. Over a hundred times in the King James, verily, verily, I say unto thee, which translates into, I tell you the truth. And later, I am the truth, the way and the life. See, his scales didn't say good and bad. They said truth and deception. And he said, avoid the devil. Why? Because he's bad? No, because he's a liar. Says about him, he said he was a liar from the start, and the father of all lies. And when he lies, he speaks his native tongue. See, once you know somebody's a liar, don't believe him, <laughs> Dirk. <Durr. laughs> Why would we believe somebody who lies? But really, what I learned is the only—if you want to get go into the comic book version—but the only superpower, if you will, <laughs> that the devil has. He's a really good liar. He can't jump off on you in the middle of the night. He can't make you do anything against your will. He can't jump into your body like some of these crazy Hollywood things, jump in you and control you without your permission. There's so many things as a created being he can't do. But the one thing he can do is lie. Obsessions, illusions, delusions, fantasies, fallacies, half-truths. See, every sin ever committed started with a deception. A promise that if you do this, this is going to happen. So we do it and get a whole different result. What happened? We were lied to. We were sold a bill of goods that never got delivered on our dock. (laughs) We got ripped off. And you see, that's the nature of deception. So Christ came to say, follow me because I'm telling you the truth and avoid that side of things because it's based in deception. The original sin in the garden started with lies. For you shall be as gods and for surely you shall not die. Think of how crazy that was for Adam and Eve to even buy that lie. They were created in God's image and likeness. You couldn't get more godlike than that. They were given the earthly kingdom like God ruled heaven, given dominion like God. They were already like God. And they weren't going to die had they not sinned. They'd still be alive today. Death only entered through sin. So we basically it's like me selling you the car you drove up in today. <laughs> That'd be a good salesmanship job, wouldn't it? You know, you already own it but yet you're going to pay me and I'm going to sell it back to you. It's crazy. You wouldn't go for a deal like that. They did. (laughs) They gave up everything they already had to gain two things they already had and then they lost the things they already had. Nuts. But that's deception. And that's how we end up in the state we do is we buy the lies. So with that... We start to understand how Adam ushered in law and religion with that understanding, the knowledge of good and evil. Christ ushered in a different set of scales of truth. And with that truth comes love and grace. Another way is uh, that's kind of interesting is not only is fruit and some of that a commonality in this, but trees are too because it was through that tree in the garden that death came, spiritual death and eventually physical death. But it was also a tree that ushered in life for us because they often refer to God's, to Christ's cross as a tree made of wood. So he died on a tree. But through that tree, see, the cross of Christ is not usually thought of as an instrument of death so much as an instrument of life life for us. So through that tree, we gain access not to death, but to life. And as an extension of that, remember the other tree that was in that Garden of Eden, the tree of life. And you see, this is another thing that blew my mind about Genesis is because after the fall, remember that story of how God ushered Adam and Eve out of the garden and he put those flaming swords at the entrance so they couldn't get back in and stationed guards there in the form of angels uh, to keep them out. And I'm thinking, dude, flaming swords? (laughs) He must have really been mad. But you see, it wasn't his wrath and anger that caused him to go to those extreme lengths. It was his supreme love. Because the tree of life was still in the garden. And Genesis is very clear. The reason they had to get out of the garden is had they eaten the fruit from the tree of life, after the forbidden tree, they would have been cursed to live forever in a fallen state. See, death is a blessing, not a curse death is not totally a bad thing because it's through dying that we live. So, in that regard, but you know where the tree of life is today? It's not in the Garden of Eden anymore. The book of Revelation says the tree of life is in heaven. And through Christ, instead of being kicked out of the access that we had to the tree of life, we get to go to heaven where the tree is. So, Through Christ, we actually get access to the tree, not expelled from where the tree is. That's kind of an interesting contrast. Uh, Also, another thing that fits into this is uh, when Adam sinned, What Adam became, he actually modeled things like disobedience, fear, shame, condemnation, judgment, and punishment. See, so we can relate to this because a lot of the experiences that Adam had are the same things that we relate to when we do things wrong, aren't they? I mean, I can certainly relate to that blinders on, blinders off thing. How many of us have made decision because those blinders went on and we did things that were maybe wrong or dumb or hurtful, but then they come off and we go, Wow, how did I I, I know better than that. Why did I do that? Or why did I have to say that? And that hindsight is always twenty twenty. But you see, when Christ came along, he modeled another option for us. Because what he models was obedience, love, forgiveness, reconciliation, and reward. Now, I didn't know that stuff was even on the menu. You ever go to a restaurant and nothing really looks that good, so you just pick something, and they bring it, and you're going, meh. And then you look over the next table, and they bring something, and you go, wow, I didn't see that on there. That looks great. And then you're really bummed. (laughs) Like, I didn't know that was an option. What is that? And... That's really how it is when we look at what we get. And then Christ comes along and shows us what we could have had. And then he goes another step and gets it for us, (laughs) which is pretty cool. Uh, Another commonality in here is uh, both of these individuals were tempted, weren't they? In Adam's case, he was tempted by a serpent. In Christ's case, uh, he was tempted, I would say, throughout his entire life. But especially there's tempted by the devil in the wilderness. And that was a 40-day ordeal. But they both suffered direct temptation from the devil himself. The only difference is one caved in, we believe pretty quickly. (laughs) The other endured it and kept saying no for 40 days. So in that way they were similar but a different result. Uh, the, the next one here is one I especially relate to. Uh, and that is one of the main things that you that I find in Genesis that I really relate to is when Adam sinned, what really happened after that was he got a new voice in his head. Anybody else have voices in their head? <laughs> No, Mark, just you. Take the blue pills. They'll go away. (laughs) But this has to do with the human condition, which is a thinking problem. I love how Mike amplified this part one time in Genesis where God is looking for Adam and Eve after they they fell, and they were hiding from him, and he couldn't find them. So already God knows what the deal is, but he had to ask them. He goes, uh... Why are you hiding? And Adam says, well, we realized we were naked, so we hid. And God asks him a great question. Who told you that you were naked? See, the serpent wasn't there anymore. Nobody else was in the garden telling them or pointing out that they were naked. They now had a new voice in their head, telling them what their problem was and what their solution needed to be. Problem. You are naked. Solution. Hide from God. And you see, that is what in the New Testament, and later on we're going to land in this, Romans 7 and 8, but Paul talking, not only he called that his lower nature, but it, the full term he used was your lower nature through Adam. Your lower nature through Adam. Sin within, that voice in your head, 24-7, accused, tempting and accusing you. Do this. Oh, how could you do that? (laughs) Do this other thing. Oh, you rotten person, how could you have done that? Oh, now do this other thing. Oh, how could you do that? You're a bad man, bad person. And you see, that is the human condition. Lower nature through Adam. Now, ironically, I thought if I came to Christ and did this Christian thing, I was going to lose that voice. Instead, they want to add another one. (laughs) <laughs> but if I, I learned today if I can get it down to three voices in my head, that's as good as it gets. <laughs> but it's better than the ones I had before. <laughs> but uh but the new voice, according to Paul later in Romans, he talks about God's spirit entering him. And a new and it's not that God hasn't always been communicating with us, but it's a source of inspiration and direction becomes an ever-increasing force in our life but it starts in our head. Sometimes, because you see, like I've often said jokingly, you know, some people picture it as a little devil on one shoulder and a little angel on the other. I think I was born and just had two little devils. (laughs) Let's get drunk and raise heck, yeah! (laughs) Good idea! You know, it was actually progress when I had that other voice going, I don't know, dude. (laughs) It might be stupid. But eventually, we start, that other voice never goes away, but thank God it doesn't have control. And you see, it doesn't stop lying. The progress is when it lies, I know it's a lie. We start thinking about our thinking, we start separating it. Because all too often it's all mushed together, and I just think it's me. What's your problem? Me. I looked in the mirror today and I saw the problem, me. I'm not the problem. This is the problem. And I can't fix it. I'm not the solution. This is the solution. Jesus, in my life, in me, in my head. And you see, that's the difference is they both wanted to add a voice, or they both ended up adding a voice in our head, but one was negative and one was positive. Uh, another uh Thing that's interesting is just like in Genesis, Eve was given to Adam as a companion. In the King James, it uses the word helpmate. Helpmate, kind of an interesting term, isn't it? Helpmate, and it was a helper, helper for him, not only a companion but somebody to work alongside of him and to assist him. Well, that became his bride. And where did she come from? From his side, from a rib. Remember what happened to Christ when he was crucified. Man pierced Christ in the side. And out of that flowed blood and water. But you see what flowed out were symbols of the church. His spiritual bride. Ooh. <laughs> but that's... Uh, comparison of Adam's bride coming out of his side versus Christ, his church, the symbols of his church, blood, blood can represent life, as Mike says, sacrifice in the Jewish culture, blood had to do with atoning for sins, communion, what is communion, the body and blood of Jesus, Uh, it represents the flesh, humanity, and the blood. What does water represent? Well, in Jewish culture, water had to do with purification. Uh, water can be a symbol of natural birth. Your water breaks and then you get, have a baby. Uh, it can be a symbol in Christianity of baptism. Water also represents spirit. Christ talked about rivers of living water. You know, his spirit, that was a reference I believe to. So, Water and blood, you know the Bible does say that uh, uh, who is this is first john five five who is it that overcomes the world? Only the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, He did not come by water only but by water and blood, and it is the Spirit who testifies because the spirit is truth. For there are three that testify, the spirit, the water, and the blood. And these three are in agreement. Kind of mystical, but yet it makes practical sense too. If we understand that the symbolism of this is a reference to God's church that flowed out of him. And the church is a servant, a helpmate, a servant in the respect that what are what is his church here to do? Serve. Serve others. So in that respect, you know, it's kind of interesting that both of these things came out of his side. Uh, so to kind of wrap all this up, uh, you know, to summarize it, somebody gave me a great T-shirt one time. It showed this antique motorcycle on it. It said, fully restored, serving the Lord. <laughs> and, uh, you know, the whole concept of restoration. See, People you know, used to say, you know, the whole purpose of Christianity is get restored. And I'm going, I wasn't hitting on all eight cylinders when I got here. <laughs> it's like that years ago during the Civil Rights Movement. Somebody making the comment, how can I be rehabilitated? I've never been habilitated. <laughs> you can't restore me to something I've never had. It's like getting back from a place I've never been to. But we know in auto mechanics, if you restore a car, you're not there to make it the way it was. You're there to make it the way it should have been. You go back to the original design, the original specs, and try to make it like it could have been had they followed the original design. So it ends up being a a much better thing than a standard car was assembled uh, in Detroit in a matter of minutes. Took a, you know, I don't know, I should have looked that up, but I think it took like an hour or something to run through the entire assembly line. You can spend 2,000 hours restoring one, but you're taking the time to do it all right. And you see, when God restores us, He's not restoring us back to the way we used to be at some point in history. He's making us the way He always wanted us to be. And how is that exactly? Just like Adam and Eve pre-fall. I think he wanted us to be alive in body, soul, and spirit. And that's why he sends his spirit, just like breathing his spirit into Adam, to put his new spirit into us and we become a new creation. So, because in conclusion, this passage talks about justification. There's three terms, three Bible terms That we use. Justified, sanctified, and glorified. The word justified means declared righteous. We are justified in God's sight because He says we're okay. We are justified. Are we okay? I don't feel okay. (laughs) I don't look okay. God says we are okay. And we stand on that. In God's eyes, we are justified. But we also become sanctified. The word sanctified means we're becoming more righteous. And as time goes on, I'm catching up. God thinks I'm okay, but I'm getting better. You know, I, as another friend of mine said, are we sinless? No, we just sin less. (laughs) We do. Because we love others, we tend less and less and less to want to do things that are going to be hurtful to them. So we become more sanctified. And upon our death, we become glorified. We finally get there fully because our lower nature stays in that grave. So what comes out of that grave is devoid of that Adam sin nature. And at that point, we actually achieve righteousness. We're glorified. And you see, that all made sense to me because it, says there's a process to this. It's not an event, it's a process. And we can live with that. We're not where we need to be, but thank God we're not where we used to be. With that, we'll bring the worship team up and uh and close this out. Uh cuz the last point of this, you know, is I can't close this without referring briefly to that part Mike always hammers on about how the law was given so that sin might increase. And I know that's crazy, a crazy concept for a lot of people. When I, he first laid that out in a teaching, the first thing I did was pull out my Bible and find that passage. I go, it cannot say in the Bible that the law was given so sin can increase. But I think what's important, it's a lot like a stress test at the hospital. Do they give you a stress test at the heart hospital because they're trying to kill you? <laughs> Not usually. <laughs> Could it kill you? It actually might. (laughs) But that's not the purpose. The purpose of a stress test is accurate diagnosis. You need to know if you have a problem with your heart. So you know what to do next to fix it. You see, this has to do with the human heart condition that we all have. As sin increases, it becomes painfully obvious that we have a heart problem. And it's to not, again to make us suffer or to kill us, it's to give us a more accurate diagnosis. Thank you. We'll just pray and we'll, we'll, we'll get out and enjoy this beautiful day. Lord, you tell us in Second Corinthians, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, that person is a new creation. The old is gone, the new is here. Help us, Lord, to simply... Willingly let go of the old and to embrace the new. In your spirit, with your spirit, all things are possible. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.